Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Connor Pope. And this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, are we ready for the next pandemic? WHO has been assessing this outbreak around the clock. We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterised as a pandemic. Since it first emerged, COVID-19 has killed over 4 million people worldwide, including more than 7,000 on the island of Ireland. Economies have been flattened and lives turned upside down. But with a massive uptake of vaccines in Ireland, this country is now gradually reopening. The time is now right to begin the move from regulation and widespread restrictions on people's personal freedom to an approach primarily defined by public health advice, personal behaviour, judgement and responsibility. It's comforting to think that once we're through the worst of this pandemic, things will go back to normal. But that's not really how these things work. There will be another pandemic and there's so many lessons about uh, how we weren't prepared, how we should have handled things differently. In fact, pandemics are now more likely than at any point in human history. So while most people are looking forward to the end of the public health crisis, the experts are already preparing for the next one. Pandem 2 is an EU research project. It builds on the work that I did in WHO on pandemic preparedness. Moira Connolly is Professor of Global Health and Development at the School of Medicine in NUIG and the coordinator of the EU security research project Pandem 2, which was set up to detect future pandemic risks. We're focusing on surveillance, communications and governance and we are developing an IT system that will allow European countries to share data and to manage a pandemic in the future. Professor Connolly, we all hope we're through the worst of this crisis, at least in Ireland, thanks to the success of the vaccination programme. But is it wrong to think this is a once in a lifetime or even a once in a century health emergency? Yes, we are through the worst of this crisis. There's been incredible progress made in terms of the vaccine development and in terms of the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine and the investment in public health systems, in diagnostics. But yes, you are correct. It is not a once in a lifetime event, even though we are still in the final stages of this pandemic. We have to be aware that there are risks out there that continue. What kind of pandemics are we used to dealing with? 
Because COVID-19 is different to an influenza pandemic, for example, isn't it? Well, influenza is the virus that has caused the most pandemics in the past 100 years. So we've had four pandemics of influenza. 1918 is the one that is probably the best known in terms of the high mortality. Over 50 million people were estimated to have died in that pandemic. There were subsequent pandemics in 1958 and 1967. And then we had the H1N1 in 2009, which you may remember that it was quite a mild disease compared to previous pandemic influenzas. This virus in Mexico was identified as a strain of type A influenza of subtype H1N1, the same subtype as the Spanish flu virus 90 years earlier. It was most likely transmitted initially from pigs to humans and then spread from humans to humans around the world. One and a half years later, the World Health Organization declared this H1N1 pandemic over. But its emergence made it clear that an influenza pandemic can start anytime and anywhere in the world. So WHO has assessed the risk of an emerging infectious diseases causing a pandemic. They assess that risk on a regular basis. And WHO have stated that the most likely source of the next pandemic is still influenza, a novel strain of influenza. But we have to remember that other coronaviruses also pose a threat. We know, for example, there's about a thousand different coronaviruses circulating in animals in wildlife. And we know of seven that have infected humans. So that includes the common cold viruses and SARS-1 and MERS. But in addition to this, other viruses pose a potential pandemic threat and they would include Lassa fever, Ebola, Zika and dengue. So again, we need to remain vigilant and have an early warning system in place and ensure that all of the lessons we are learning in the response to this pandemic, that we do not lose these lessons, that we use it to build stronger pandemic preparedness systems going forward. And do you think we're at more risk of a global outbreak of a new illness today? than we were in the past. And if that is the case, why is it so? Yes, we are at at higher risk now than at any other point in, in human history. There are a number of reasons for this. One is the human encroachment into virgin forests. We've seen situations where logging and mining companies have encroached into forest areas and that led to the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in West Africa. Again, a part of the world that had not experienced Ebola in the past. The second issue is intensive farming practices. So we see these very large poultry farms where avian influenza can spread very rapidly and the increasing number of wet markets. We don't know exactly where the SARS-CoV-2 virus originated from, but one of the theories is that it originated through an intermediate host called a pangolin from bats in Wuhan in China. Again, this is something that could happen potentially in the future, and we just need to make sure that we have systems in place to rapidly detect an emerging disease like that. And, And the third issue that increases the risk of disease emergence is the number of laboratories that are currently working globally on high threat pathogens. And in many countries, they've got very strict biosecurity measures. But in other countries, perhaps they need to be looked at in more detail and have a greater global regulation of how research is conducted on these viruses that could pose a potential pandemic threat in the future. And globally, do you think the appetite is there to do these things to reduce the likelihood of a further pandemic in the years ahead? 
Yes, I do. And I think my previous role in, in WHO working on pandemic preparedness and emerging infectious diseases, what we found was that while we had dealt with the SARS-1, which you know was a, a huge success by the global community to control this disease, again, a very close relation to SARS-2. They share about 80% of the genetic sequencing. But with SARS-1, what was distinctly different about that was that you were infected and sick for a week before you could pass the disease on to someone else. So public health measures like quarantine and strict isolation controlled that pandemic within four months. And we were very fortunate because that disease has a mortality rate of 10%. So there were about 8,000 cases worldwide, of which there were 800 deaths, and the majority of them were in healthcare workers. So after that, a lot of work was done trying to build the global preparedness capacity for pandemic response. And what we found then was that H1N1 because it was such a mild pandemic that there was a certain sense of, well, that was a once off. So I think we are now at a very a great opportunity to ensure that all we've achieved in the last 18 months that is sustained, that there is a capacity left behind. We know that the advances in diagnostic assays and the advances in vaccine development, that that will remain with us as a very powerful arsenal against future pandemics. And, and I think the economic impact of this pandemic has also shown how this is not just a health issue. And I think as our policymakers or decision makers and those with funding decisions in governments around the world will look at the impact of this pandemic, both economically, socially, as well as health. And I think this will lead to world leaders investing in pandemic preparedness going forward. Influenza is a very important public health problem. It affects millions of people every year and causes a lot of illness, a lot of hospitalizations, and a large number of deaths globally. Professor, is there any reason to believe that any new influenza strain would be less devastating than the ones that we've gone through in the past? No, we cannot be reassured that we couldn't get a strain like the 1918 strain of influenza. We saw during that pandemic that there were a lot of young males affected. And the reason for that was that particular strain was so antigenically different. Its genetic structure was so different from any previous influenza viruses that what actually happened was the human's immune response is what killed them. So it is an overreaction by uh, often young males, many of them in the army, very large numbers, particularly in the US died. And essentially it was an, an overreaction of their immune response to the virus. And that's what caused their death. And in many cases, it happened within 24 to 48 hours. So we are certainly in a better position now in terms of their health, in terms of the availability of healthcare, in terms of availability of ventilators, in terms of how clinicians manage conditions like acute respiratory distress syndrome, we're certainly, we have much better capacity to support somebody with a disease that would be like 1918. But again, the issue is how many people would get affected at a certain point in time. What is the ability of our healthcare system to provide healthcare for those that are more severely affected? So part of our work now is to make sure that 
all we've learned in the last 18 months builds into a capacity to ramp up production of ventilators, for example, increase the ability of healthcare professionals to learn how to manage people with severe respiratory illness rapidly, how to ensure early detection that we know what drugs and what interventions, medical countermeasures can be done. So our experience of the last 18 months will put us in a better position to deal with the future influenza pandemic if it turns out to be a more severe form of that disease. Coming up, what happens next with COVID-19 and what lessons have been learned from the pandemic? One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This pandemic has been very severe. It's been, it's spread around the world uh, extremely quickly. It has affected every corner of this planet. But this is not necessarily the big one. This virus is very transmissible and it kills people and it has deprived so many people of loved ones. But its current case fatality uh, is reasonably low in comparison to other emerging diseases. This is a wake-up call. We are learning now how to do things better. What do you think is likely to happen with COVID-19 in the months and even the years ahead? Well, COVID is going to remain with us. It is more than likely going to become an endemic disease. We've only managed to successfully eradicate one disease in human populations, and that's smallpox. We're currently in the process of eradicating polio, and that has taken a huge amount of effort globally to try and eradicate this disease. Some casual observers may think polio eradication in the age of COVID-19 is not as important as it once was. I think it's even more important. We are making incredible strides in in Europe in terms of the vaccination rollout. But vaccination in developing countries will remain a challenge because of the infrastructure and because of the investment requirements. I would expect that mask wearing will remain with us, particularly in high risk settings and hand washing and all of those public health measures will actually protect us from other respiratory pathogens. So there is a benefit in a way in terms of managing respiratory infections in in humans. One of the notable things about the last winter in the middle of the or the height of the COVID-19 crisis was the small number of people who got sick with 
other, as you say, respiratory infections. Is that likely to be a feature this year and next year as people do wear masks more and do sanitise their hands more and do keep their distance more? Yes, yes, absolutely. And and we saw it already in Southeast Asian countries, um, countries like South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, in those countries where they had experience of bird flu, SARS and MERS. Mask wearing was something that they traditionally did, particularly in the winter months. So if someone had a cold or a flu, they wore a mask as a source control measure to reduce the risk of transmission to other people. So I think that's an intervention that will remain with us. And it's a very positive thing. Uh, And I think it's one, I suppose people will say, you know, in terms of school, when kids went back to school, they weren't coming out of school with with head colds and with flus over over the winter. So that is one benefit of, of the public health measures that have been implemented. And I think we will be more like uh, Southeast Asian countries in terms of how we deal with respiratory symptoms and sending kids to school with flu-like symptoms will become something that won't happen and and hopefully reduce the risk of transmission then onto the wider school population. So yes, I I foresee that that, uh, we will hopefully see a, a reduced impact of respiratory pathogens over the winter, over the coming months. One of the other things that's, I suppose, important to address is that we tend to learn from our mistakes as human beings. And obviously, there was a lot of mistakes made when it came to the spread of COVID-19 across the world. Do you think in a global context, more could have been done to contain the spread of COVID early last year? If there was earlier warning of the initial cases of human to human transmission in Wuhan in December 2019, uh, there, there is a potential, a theoretical potential that, that we may have contained it uh, within uh, that province. But what's crucial here is that surveillance systems in hospitals and animal surveillance systems uh, rapidly detect any signal that would indicate a new disease. So a a cluster of people admitted to hospital with a respiratory infection that needs to be rapidly diagnosed and that information sent to WHO so that the global community can respond and support that country in the confirmation and the management of that disease. So you know, it, 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 no emergency is done perfectly. A response like this that has taken 18 months. There are many decisions that may have been taken earlier. I recall a, a, an interview that the head of the Chinese CDC gave in, in March at the outset of the pandemic when he said that the one error that America, the US and European countries were doing was that they were not using masks and that their experience of respiratory pathogens in the past showed that mask wearing was protective. So I think, you know, perhaps that's an, another area of science that countries globally and WHO were, were quite, it, it took some time before they recommended it as a policy measure to reduce the transmission of COVID. Do you think our vaccine development has made great strides as a result of COVID-19 and could that protect us or help us in the event of another pandemic? 
The advances in vaccine technology have been unprecedented. In the past, it could take anything between five and 10 years to develop a new vaccine. I think even those of us in the public health world working in it for the last 25, 30 years were taken aback at the investment made by Biopharma, the collaboration between them to have this number of vaccines within six to nine months of a brand new pathogen emerging was was really beyond our, our expectations. And you may recall, I know Tom Frieden, a former head of CDC, spoke at the outset trying to be conservative in how soon a vaccine could be made available. So I think it exceeded our expectations and this sets us up very positively for any future pandemic threat. The mRNA vaccine technology will allow pharmaceutical companies to address other pathogens in the future as they emerge in a much shorter time frame. With influenza, we're fortunate in that we have influenza platforms already there. So much as the work that's going on now trying to tweak the vaccine to take account of the new variants. So it means for for emerging variants, we will be able to address any new major changes in a booster vaccine for COVID. For influenza, we already have an influenza platform. So every year a seasoned influenza vaccine is made based on the circulating strains from the previous summer in the in Australia and New Zealand. So for a future influenza pandemic, we would rapidly be able to get vaccines available. But for any new emerging disease, what we have developed in the last 18 months will stand to us. Will the lessons that we've learned from COVID-19 make us better able to deal with future pandemics? And will the infrastructure that has been built up all over the world to deal with COVID-19 remain in place to help us deal with future pandemics? What do you reckon? This is an absolutely crucial issue and and now is the time to look at the sustainability of the pandemic response capacity that we've built up. Uh, I've been in vaccination, mass vaccination centres here, have seen the commitment of the staff, the involvement of the defence forces, the IT tools that were made available, the management of the, the, the distribution of the vaccine, the supply chain, the cold chain issues, a remarkable achievement. And what's really important now is that we ensure that we have that capacity in reserve as such that can be scaled up then in the event of a new pandemic. Uh, on the modelling work, we, we as part of IMAG, we're looking at the long-term sustainability of a, a scaled down version of IMAG with computer scientists, with mathematical modelers who can rapidly uh, be um, activated in the event of a pandemic. And we've also seen in the diagnostic side, the laboratory capacity. I mean, we managed to get a nationwide laboratory testing system in place within a relatively short time frame. And so what we need to do is ensure that, again, we have in place the reserve to activate that in the future. And and then contact tracing then is another crucial area. And and, and underlying all this is an investment in public health. Public health medicine is a a really important weapon in any country. The area of public health, public health departments working with local communities, protecting health and ensuring vaccination programmes are available. So we need to be looking at a long-term vision where health is up there, centre stage, along with all the other economic issues that we're concerned about. And within that ties in the issue of climate change, of planetary health. So I would be optimistic, those that are key decision makers, as, as we go forward over the next six months, that there will be the wisdom and the insight 
to invest in a, a sustainable structure of, of public health and laboratory and health services so that if we were to deal with a pandemic in the future, that we would rapidly respond to it and would avoid the significant social, economic and health impacts of this pandemic. If there's one thing we need to take from this pandemic with all of the tragedy and loss is that we need to get our act together. We need to get ready for something that may even be more severe in future. In this, we must honour those we've lost by getting better at what we do every day. That's it for today. In the news, we'll be back on Friday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 